for business owners, marketing execs, and anyone trying to grow your business, pump your profits, and make more while doing less. Welcome to Bacon Wrapped Business with Brad Costanzo. Sizzling hot business advice guaranteed to make you fat. Profits? Now here's your host, Brad Costanzo. All right, welcome back to Bacon Wrapped Business. This is Brad, and today I'm talking about, as some of you loyal subscribers know, one of my favorite topics, and that is the area of mergers, acquisitions, deal making, exits. And I've covered this topic on a handful of episodes in the past, or as we call them here on Bacon Wrapped Business, episizzles, because they are just way hotter than an average podcast episode. And This is near and dear to my heart because I have been on both sides of transactions of both buying a business and selling a business. I've been on the smaller side for some of them. And then in some of the deals that I work on in some of the other companies, I've got a few bigger seven-figure acquisitions. And I've always found this to be one of the most exciting parts of business, which is finding people who either have assets that I can acquire instead of building from scratch, because we all know how hard a startup is. It's as exciting as it is. It's very risky and it's very difficult. And if you can utilize your business acumen and marketing strategies and you step into a business, you can oftentimes get a great head start. And whether that's buying a business that you just want to run or growing your business through acquisitions or buying them as just a financial investment. And then on the flip side, where most entrepreneurs I know have made significant wealth is on the exit and disposition of an asset that they've spent years of their life working and honing and uh, getting really good. And we are in an unprecedented time with the baby boom generation who's starting to retire. And there's a lot of business owners there and they're starting to need people to buy their companies. So this is a tremendous opportunity for people on both sides because there's a lot of buyers out there. There's a lot of sellers However, there is not necessarily as much training and education on how to do this correctly and not get burned because as sexy of a strategy as it is, it is also fraught with things that you don't know that you don't know. And most entrepreneurs and business owners, you know, they get into the business to operate their business and to provide a service and a, or a product or a good for somebody. And they didn't get into the business to position it for sales and they didn't get into it to know what to look for when they're going to buy something. So the more education I think we can all receive, yours truly included on this, the better we are. And that's why I invited Terry Lammers on to the podcast today. So Terry has got a great story. He grew up watching his parents run their own company in the fuel and lubricants industry. And he eventually became a full-time employee in the early 90s, only to take over as the president of the company. And in just 18 years, his company, Tri-County Petroleum, had purchased and grown through acquisition 11 different companies. And they've grown his family business from $750,000 in annual sales to over 40 million when the company was sold in 2010. And today he's a co-founder and managing member of Innovative Business Advisors, where he taps into his financial expertise and his hands-on business experience to advise and guide both prospective business owners who are interested in buying as well as current business owners who are looking to sell their enterprises. And Terry also has a great book out called You Don't Know What You Don't Know. And it's all about an in-depth examination of the process of buying, growing, and eventually selling a business. So Terry, 
welcome to Bacon Wrapped Business. It's a pleasure Thank to have you. you. That's very flattering. Who's that guy? Who is that fella? <laughs> I don't know. I just made him up. So what's your story? <laughs> yeah, so interestingly, we found out offline. We grew up, uh, I don't know, half an hour, hour from uh, you know each other. Myself from Edwardsville, Illinois. You're from Highland. So we've got a little regional history there. That's right. I'm a bulldog and you're a what, tiger. tiger or what, what are they? Edwardsville Tigers. Edwardsville That's Tigers. That's right. Absolutely. So your story fascinates me. And I know that we can talk about, there's two real sides of this, like playing the piano, left hand or right hand. So there's the acquisition and then there's the disposition. Well, and in the middle, there's obviously the operation. On this conversation, I don't want to talk as much about the operation of a business unless it really adheres to operating your business in a way that sets you up correctly for a sale. And really, you know, we talked about this offline. There is the things that people do from like operating the business for cash flow and to increase profit, but then there's another way to operate your business so that you're hitting all these key performance indicators that allow you to eventually sell your business and not get steamrolled over some stupid mistakes that you've made. But I want to kind of follow this linearly. I want to talk a little bit more about the story you hinted at before in the oil and gas company and how you grew through acquisitions. I mean, three quarters of a million dollars in revenue to 40 million in revenue is just an amazing jump. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit more of that story about you starting as a employee with your folks fuel and lubricants business and um, how you got to the point where deciding that, yeah, we're going to buy some of our competition or somebody else in order to grow. So take me back there. It truly was a wild ride. So, I mean, I grew up in a company. I was driving a gas truck when I was 13 years old. I came back to the company in 1991 and I jokingly say it was me, my mom and dad. We had two trucks and it was a good day if they both started. My starting salary was zero. I left the banking position with a credit card finance. So, I've always been a financial person, but I knew we had an opportunity to buy another company. And I knew if we bought that company, we'd put my dad's business back in the black. Now, was this company a, a competitor or they did something? Yeah, it was like a friendly competitor, you know. So, it was a, obviously a small company, but just like you said, you bought a company 100% owner finance. That's exactly what we did. I mean, my dad, heck, I was only 21 years old and my dad's company wasn't bankable because it was in rough shape, but I knew this would put us back in the black and it's exactly what we did. And that was in 1992. And then, you know, you start out, you're working in a company, you're the doer. You know, and then in 1995, we bought another company. And then 19, I think it was 96 or seven, we bought another company and and it just started steamrolling. And in the year 2000, we bought three companies in one year. And then after that, we was just on a roll. How challenging was the integration process after purchasing the company? I know I've purchased, you know, a couple of businesses and I actually thought it was going to be a lot simpler than it was. And this was probably just to me not you know, leveraging the right resources. But when you go buy another company, there's it, closing the deal is only the very beginning, right? Now you have to actually make sure it's integrated well, managed well. And how did you handle that? So really, I think the key to that is, you know, so you're going back before email and all this other stuff, but we would send out a letter in the company that we acquired and their letterhead in their envelope with a letter from them saying, hey, I chose to sell my business to this person because it's a fair deal for me and I'm retiring and I want you to give them a shot. And then we would have a letter behind that saying, you know, Hey, we want to help you, blah, blah, blah. But you know, the old 80, 20 rule where 80% of your business comes from 20% of your customers. You know, the key was 
confidentiality. And if we could get the deal done before anybody knew about it and we could go around with that owner and hit those top 20 customers, 20% customers, we was very successful in converting and keeping about 95% of those customers because it was a deal where there's no contracts or anything in place. They get, they're free to go buy their fuel from somebody else if they want. Did you absorb like it was one name or did you operate them independent? Like, was that another independently just owned company? You owned them, but they operated out of the same brand or did you loop them in into your. Yeah, in our situation, brand? we did every deal I've done was an asset purchase and okay. looped them under our name. Okay. But the other key to it, I think is, you know, there's, I mean, so we bought 11 different companies, but there's a lot of situations where you buy a company and you see issues going on. It's like, Oh my God, we got to change that. But don't do it right away. Give it a little bit of time. Let the customers get used to you. And a lot of times, you know, for us, it was about earning their trust. So, you know, we're in fuel and lubricant. So you got hoses, nozzles, filters, and maybe it was giving them a filter, putting a new hose on their tank or something to just show some good faith towards them. And that worked. You know, you just got to be patient. Don't go in blazing saddles and, you know, trying to change everything right out of the gate because you're going to offend them because they don't know what they don't know. And, you know, just got to be a little bit slow. Yeah. So on the on all those deals, you said you always did asset purchases and did were all the acquisitions were those eventually then enveloped by the parent brand? Yes. Okay. And then were you typically buying, and this is, I mean, I got a lot of ignorance of the fuel and lubricant market, as I'm sure most people do, but were you buying a lot of physical assets or were you buying like, in essence, customer lists and processes and things like that? Like, cause there's a, you know, people think about the assets of a business and assets of a business are everything from your URL to your customer list to processes to IP, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost 50, 50. Nice. There was situations where we strictly was buying a customer list. I mean, it was literally 80% goodwill. The largest acquisition I had, so I would explain my company was, we was a fuel business that sold lubricants. Mm-hmm. My lubricants business was growing and I needed new facilities. I was out, I was busting at the seams. So I bought a lubricants company that sold fuel. And mm-hmm. the facilities that he had for lubricants would probably, if I had to build it, it would probably cost about what I paid for the cust- for the company. So I got the customers with it, you know, or there's other companies that I bought that put us a physical office or a bulk plant, which is a petroleum storage facility in a geographical area that we're not in. So that was a great way to expand that way also. And I don't know if you've ever seen a bulk plant before, but they're not glamorous assets and, you know, and, but they're valuable if you're the one that's using them. So yeah. you, you can buy them at, you know, we was buying them at a, at a very much of a discount and getting the cash flow with the customers with them. So, right. Now, um, where you end up having to take over the management of it, or did you retain any of the existing managerial, whether it's the owner or the number two or three people in order to kind of help continuity yeah, of it? Absolutely. So, I mean, that was key because, Customers love the drivers. And, you know, when I sold the company, I had three former owners working for me yet. Nice. Yeah. I never bought a company that we let an employee go. I was very fortunate from that standpoint that, especially office staff and stuff like that. We was well, always especially if you can buy it and keep the existing management on board for a while. I don't know if there was like, maybe some of them have earnouts and whatnot. I have. I and mean, I've done, I've bought businesses gosh, any way you can slice it. I mean, from 100% owner financing to 100% bank financing to a mixture of the both. I've bought two companies that were distressed 
and we paid them a percentage of the gross profit from what we got to keep the customers that transferred over. My fastest company I ever bought was in three days. Found out about it on a Wednesday and, and closed on Friday. I called them, found out about it, called them, and I said, hey, what's going on here? I heard some rumors, and they're like, closing the doors on Friday. I'm like, what are you doing with your customers? And he said, telling them to go someplace else. I was like, hold the phone. I'll be right there. <laughs> I gave them 25% of the gross profit for one year for the customers that we kept. So I put that company in my computer system like a salesperson and printed them off a monthly report and wrote them a check. And it was a super fair deal. It was great for me. So they were just going to close. So yeah, they were just going to close. of the profits I mean, for one year is like, that's just free money that they never would yeah. have gotten. I did that in 2000, and t- in the year 2000, you know, and I still had, I bet 95% of those customers in 2010 when I sold. So, that's beautiful. you know, and it was all commercial accounts. So, I mean, if you're a business owner out there and you're wanting to grow your company, you have to consider acquisitions. It's a great way to grow your company. Well, you know, and that's one of the other things too, is that I kind of touched on this. You definitely drove the point home is that you don't always have to, I mean, you buy assets, you don't have to buy an entire company. You don't have to buy even all of somebody's assets. You can sometimes buy a portion of their assets, especially it all depends upon the situation that somebody's in. If they're going out of business, now you've got like a yard sale. You can kind of pick and choose if you want, depending on the situation. But yeah, buying somebody's distribution channels, maybe buying somebody's product or IP or just their customer list et cetera, is huge. I love, and you touched on this. I, one of my favorite topics, I could talk about creative deals all day. Like that was a very creative deal. I love that. Were there any other kind of creative deals or creative structures that you <laughs> did that kind of stand out as like, man, that was a fun one to talk I, about? I got one that was kind of funny. Vandalia over in Illinois. So you know where that's at? You remember that from your Edwardsville days? I sure so do. About 40 miles down the interstate from yep. Edwardsville. We bought Bowen Oil Company in Vandalia and his competitor was right down the street, and it was a deal where they was friendly competitors. So I bought Bowen Oil Company, and then a Pioneer Oil Company down the street, Ron, oh my gosh, his name's escaping me, but Ron came up to me and he said, well, if you bought him, you're buying me too, and his facilities suck, and mine are much better, so we'll work this out. We'll just combine the two companies, and uh, those two guys were still working for me whenever I sold the company, but the way we did it, because I bought them like three months apart, so we worked out of Bowen Oil Company's facilities for a while. I bought Ron's customers basically, but then about six months later, I bought his real estate and we structured a deal with Pioneer Oil Company that my payments would be such until I paid off the Bowen acquisition and then I would increase my payments to him to get him taken care of and it was part bank financed. And so it was really kind of complicated, simple, but complicated. Yeah. But the other thing that made it complicated in my situation is the working capital requirements to run an oil company are crazy because you have to pay for the fuel in 10 days. So that's your accounts payable days and your accounts receivable days run around say 27. So you get 17 days of funding there. there. So, you know, if your sales are, so at the end of when I sold the company, you know, my sales were over $250,000 a day. So take that time 17, that's a lot of money, you know, versus if your sales are $100,000 a day, you're doubling the thing. So that, that's something that I didn't know back then, which is really the basis of the book. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know, right? And it was just a struggle with banks and, you know, even though your profitability is growing and everything else, I mean, we was sucking working capital like crazy. And until it got bigger, that was an issue. It was hard. And I, I could paint you many a picture 
of a company that goes broke, not because they're not profitable, but because they flat ran out of cash. Yeah. That's one of the biggest business. I mean, one of the biggest issues in a lot of businesses that is often unreported. You don't hear about that when people are talking about, you know, in business interviews and articles and stuff like that. But uh, I've got a lot of friends who in the, just in the physical product e-commerce business where they become a victim of their own success because, you know, if you do a hundred units or a thousand units this month and then you're growing and then, you know, to 2000 units next month, I mean, you have to finance the inventory and there's that entire cash flow crunch that can just eat you alive if you don't know how to take care of that. I personally, and that is not my specialty in knowing how to solve those problems easily. I don't think that is an easy solution to that. Otherwise, nobody would have the... <laughs> it's one of the things when I do public speaking that I talk extensively on. It's funny, I'm still friends with my banker from back then. And as the company was growing and I mean, some years we was growing 100% and he kept telling me, Terry, you got to slow down. Terry, you got to slow down. And, you know, at that age, you're like, I don't know the meaning of the word, you know, full speed ahead. And, and then the price of fuel is going up. And <laughs> I mean, this is true. And he'll tell you because he remembers the exact number. On one day, I was $750,000 overdrawn in my checkbook. Oh, damn. And they covered me. <laughs> <laughs> and he got a call from the CEO of the bank, which was in a different state going, do you know this Terry Lammers guy? <laughs> he better be <laughs> better know well. Yeah, those, those are stressful situations. <laughs> in most cases, in order to kind of cover those uh, cash flow crunches, was the right banking relationships really the most critical thing? Or did you go out and raise external funds? or external well, So it was two things, really. So one, the right banking relationship is absolutely critical. You know, I'd have been dead in the water if you wouldn't have stood behind me. But then what was the key to solving the problem, and it's another you don't know what you don't know, is I always had a line of credit, but it was a specific amount. So say your line of credit is $500,000, but you're growing the company. So what solved the problem is when they put me on a borrowing-based certificate. So a borrowing-based certificate doesn't really give you a top line of what you can borrow, but it's basically you get your line of credit is based off of 50% of your inventory and say 75 or 80% of your accounts receivable. So now, especially in my case, the accounts receivable is really ramping up. At the end of the month, you fill out this borrowing-based certificate that says, say, you know, my inventory is $100,000, so I can have 50,000 borrowed against it. My accounts receivable is $100,000, so I can have 80,000 borrowed against that. So if my line isn't over 130,000, it's all good. So. Mm. That's what solved my problem. But I never heard of a borrowing-based certificate until they finally brought it up to me. And then you're like, want to thump them on the head. And it's like, why didn't we do this three years ago? You know, <laughs> I've been stressing about this the whole time. And it is really crazy. And I think that's why it's important for growing businesses to have advisors because, again, I don't want to... Especially in this area, because this is not like when you go to start a business, I mean, you're thinking of product and market fit and pricing and operations and employees. And you're just trying to make sure that you can make enough money to keep the bills afloat. And it's, you know, it's really hard to know everything, right? There's so many things you really do not know. And that's, those things can, you know, bite you in the ass if you're not oh, careful. Absolutely. So I always called myself a big little company when we sold it, you know, but at $250,000 a day in sales, if my accounts receivable days went up by two, so I'm not collecting my money as fast, and my accounts payable days went down by two, so I'm paying my bills faster. 250 times four is $1 million. You know, that's a million dollars in cash that poof is gone out of the company. Yeah. 
And it has absolutely nothing to do with the profitability of the company. But if yep. you can't fund that, you're SOL. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So grew the business, grew through acquisitions. Question on that, sourcing your competitors. And now this, we can talk about this from just your experience in the in that business, but we can, I mean, I know you've got a lot of experience past that. And this is one of the things that even selfishly, I've got a business that we're going to be trying to acquire some of our competitors and a roll up, et cetera. But when it comes to sourcing your competitors, sourcing your acquisition targets in order to grow through, I would think that this can be pretty tricky because if you just approach somebody who's a competitor and first of all, you got to get them open to talking to you and open to talking to you about potentially selling their business. And then like if you approached me and we're, you know, even slightly competitive and you're like, yeah, no, I want to buy your business. Let's say we come up with a preliminary number that might make sense. I still think, well, how do I know you're not coming in here to just, you know, learn everything you can about my business and take off, right? And steal some of my trade secrets. So I could see it being a sensitive thing mm-hmm. in order to grow through acquisitions. What insights do you have on that? Like, how did you I mean, finding those, if they're competitors, that's not hard. You know who they are, but approaching them and getting them into those conversations to where they felt open to having the conversations with you. God, that is an excellent question. And I'm smiling. I don't know if on the podcast, they'll be able to see that because I'm like, ah, I want to tell you. <laughs> Good. I called it planting the seed. Uh-huh. So a couple of different ways. One, if you're interested in acquiring other companies, put it out there, tell your insurance agent. So in our situation, there was only a couple of insurance agencies that insured fuel companies. So by telling them, hey, I'm interested in growing by acquisition, a couple of my leads came from them. So, hey, nice. you know, Sylvester Petroleum's interested in selling. But then I would also go around to my competitors and if I wanted to buy them and just go in and introduce myself. I think business owners fall into the trap of that's my competitor. He's my enemy. I'm not talking to him. Hey, guess what? They're people too. They're getting older just introduce yourself. So I called it planting a seed. I wouldn't go there and say, I want to buy your company. I just go there and introduce myself and say, you know, Hey, I'm Terry. I'm with Tri-County. Looks like you got a great business. If there's ever a chance for us to work together or you need something, give me a call. And that's your first touch. Now they know you. So then maybe next year you come and say, Hey, just stop by Brad to say hi again. How you doing? And the next thing you know, it might lead to a cup of coffee and the next conversation might be getting a phone call from them and saying, hey, let's sit down and talk. I was kind of known in the area that we was buying up companies. And it's kind of funny. I had it when I sold at a company on the line that I was going to buy, but I ended up selling my company. But when I approached that guy just to stop in and again, plant the seed, I knew him from another acquisition. He goes, don't joke with me. I know you want to buy me out. So <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> But there is, there's just multiple ways, you know, the company I told you about that we bought in three days, we found out from one of their customers. It's really just keeping your ears open. I'm working yep. with a company right now in Washington state and, you know, we're sending some letters to the, just a nice letter that says, Hey, it's from my company innovative. And it says, I have a company that's interested in acquiring companies like yours through acquisition. If you're interested, please give us a call. But again, it's planting that seed. I mean, you're a business owner. You've thought about selling companies. I think we all have as business owners. So maybe you get the letter and you don't think of it, but it's one of those things that kind of gets shoved in the drawer. And one day when they're upset or frustrated, they pull it out and they make a phone call. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So since you got out of this, of the oil business, the oil and lubricants business, I assume you're out. You said you sold everything, right? You sold it to uh, 
really big company, like a $6 billion company. Mm-hmm. And what was the first thing you did after that? And I don't mean like just the fun stuff. I mean, did you go out and like buy another company in another market? Did you, is this when you started consulting and advising or what was the? You know, it's kind of funny. So owning a fuel company when fuel's $4 a gallon, like it was back in 2010, ain't fun. So really? after I sold it, it's like, I'm done. You know, I had to work for the company that bought me for six months. After that, I was done hung around the house for three months and my wife was like, you're going to get a job. (laughs) (laughs) So Regions Bank, a a bank asked me to come be a loan officer and I was always kind of a finance guy. So that was kind of cool. They gave me a good salary and fair benefits. And I did that for three and a half years. In that time frame, I kind of got my entrepreneurial spirit back and that's when we started Innovative and I got my CBA designation to value businesses. and, And that's how my situation went. I was frustrated with it. I had somebody value the business and they came up with a number and it's like, well, if you can sell it for that, let's do this. So that's basically, I'm doing kind of how the path that I went down. Let me back up a minute because this question just came up in my head. So when you sold your business, what was the structure of that? Obviously, you're selling it to a big, sophisticated, you know, $6 billion business. I'm not asking you to, you don't have to reveal the, you know, the dollar figures or numbers, anything super sensitive. Yeah. But I'm just kind of curious on, was that, typically like an all cash deal? Was it cash plus maybe like public stock? Was it like, are you able to divulge any of that? Yeah, absolutely. It was a pretty much an all cash deal. They did hold back a significant, almost seven figure number for one year. Or if I was done in six months, just to keep my attention, there was no mm-hmm. ties to it, but it, yeah, it keeps your attention, you know, just to help you transition the business over. But that, I think, you know, it's just crazy. So I had bought 11 different companies. So I would say I'm a sophisticated buyer. I knew. And my thought process all along was to build the thing up and sell it. So I had my ducks in order. I mean, I reviewed financial statements. All of my rolling equipment was all in line. We had signed lease equipment, signed lease agreements on all the stuff we had out in the field. We had our ducks in a row. So from the day we signed the letter of intent, we closed in six weeks. That's phenomenal. But basically, Growmark was a cash buyer. So we didn't have to go down the whole, you know, they got to get their loan approved and all this and that. So uh, it it did go very fast. They have their own acquisition department. So they have their own attorneys. I had my attorney who I really like and was very good. So we could move quickly. And it was a pretty clean transaction then. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a confidentiality breach. You know, because I, I ended up, I told you offline, I sold it to nine different companies. Girlmark bought my lubricants division and then eight, their cooperative and eight of their FS member companies bought my fuel side. And one of the brilliant managers sent an email to all their employees that they was buying us before the purchase agreement was even signed. So that got to be a little bit of an issue. Thank God it moved quickly. Otherwise that would have been an issue. But yeah, I mean, kudos to them. They was really good people to deal with and it helped me that I'd been through several acquisitions on the other side of the fence. So you learn how to kind of make those business judgment decisions. And I would tell your listeners, if you got somebody, you know, somebody's listening, they want to sell their business. Don't let your attorney take over the deal. You've got to make business decisions during the thing. They're there to help you and protect you, but don't let them start and make decisions. You got to do things that make sense. Who are some of the advisors you recommend having on your side when you uh, kind of like your advisory team, both on the acquisition and the disposition side. So if I'm going out there trying to buy a business right now, whether it's growth through acquisition or just, I want to buy a business to be in that business. Can you list out kind of like 
I mean, obviously yourself, this is one of the things you guys do at Innovative Business Advisors is you handle a lot of this. Maybe you can kind of cover the, like the areas you handle and then the other players on the team that somebody should have, like whether it's an attorney, the right CPA and anybody else. Yeah. So in the book, that's kind of the middle of my book. I have a chapter on bankers, attorneys, CPAs, financial advisors, you know, on the buying side, one of the ways when I value a company, I'm really big on, is it a bankable deal? So, you know, if I value your company at $5 million, can you put a, make a reasonable down payment, go to a bank and have a good enough debt service coverage ratio? So basically, is there enough cash flow to pay for that business? Mm -hmm. I sadly have seen several instances where somebody bought the business for way too much money and they just struggled because they paid too much money for it and there's no cash flow there. So getting a correct valuation on the business is very important. Having the correct attorney is very important, but that's building your team. And, you know, maybe it involves a broker. I say as a broker or playing intermediary, being an intermediary is you have somebody who wants to sell, you have somebody who wants to buy, but they don't know how to get the deal done. And so we're the in-between. We do that for a much cheaper fee than just outright selling the company where we have to go find the buyer. But anyway, from there, I play quarterback and I, I make sure you have the right financial advisor. I make sure you got the right CPA. Make sure you got the right attorney. A classic error that I see is people go to their estate planning attorney, estate planning attorney to do an M&A transaction. It's uh, bad. Going to a podiatrist to do your uh, yeah. heart surgery. Yeah. So it is important to build your team. You know, and, and I'll be the first one to put my hand up. I didn't do it right 100% when I sold my company. Mm -hmm. I didn't tell my CPA because he was also a very large farmer and a customer. So I didn't want him to know. (laughs) And, you know, at the time when I sold the company, I bet I didn't have $80,000 in investable assets. And the the financial advisor you need with $80,000 in investable assets and over seven figures in investable assets is different. And I didn't understand the difference. So, so you say when you went to sell your company, you didn't have the 80,000 in assets? Personally. No, yeah. not assets, just investable income. So, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I invested in the market. Gotcha. Just, I invested, everything was tied up in my company. Sure. You know, that's very typical of about 80% of the business owners. They need, so this is a great point. If you're listening to the show and you're a business owner and you are planning on the sale of your company to fund your retirement, get your business valued. Because it just pains me when people come to me and they think their company is worth, say, $10 million, And then I tell them it's worth $5 million, And it just blows up their retirement plan. You know, and that's $5 million before taxes. Because Uncle Bob told them this or that, you know. So it's just critically important to know the true value of your company. Absolutely. And how what that about- fits in with your retirement plans. Yeah, it is one of those big things that you don't want to be surprised by. So like get in there early, figure it out, even if you're 10 years away or something like that, you know, figure it out so you know not to be completely surprised. I've got a a close friend of mine that I advise on some growth stuff and he's thinking about selling his business and it's almost the exact same thing. Like he's got this concept that he thinks he could probably get 10 to 15 million for it. And realistically, he might be able to get six. And it's like, that's a huge difference. And he did, because he doesn't understand the way that valuations work and the way exits work and how, what you have, everybody thinks their kid's the prettiest, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you and I talked a little bit offline. You've interviewed John Worrell before with the value builder system, go to our website and you can take a value builder questionnaire. But the big mm-hmm. thing about the value builder system, what I like is they talk about some non-financial things that really 
not only can hurt the value of business, but can outright make it unsellable. So it's sad. I mean, I had a trucking logistics company that was cash flowing over a half million dollars a year, but the owner did absolutely everything. He dispatched all the trucks. Every customer called him. Every employee went to him. And, you know, you're going to attract a lot of buyers with that. But the bottom line was, if you take him out of the business, there is no business. It, it proved to be an unsellable company. Yeah. That reminds me of one of the uh, recent episodes I just did with it. It was a guy named David Osborne. And for anybody in my, you know, listening to this, you can find that on the podcast. And uh, David is, he's in the real estate business, but he's like the largest owner of Keller Williams franchises. He owns like 15 of those, et cetera. And his entire mission has always been, how do I make myself the most insignificant person at my business through hiring, partnering, et cetera, with the right people? And that's really, I think, any entrepreneur, business owner who's got an exit in mind, you have to find a way. How do I make myself insignificant to the operations of this business? And you make the business infinitely more successful. And and it's a journey because, I mean, believe me, when I first came back, like I told you, we had two trucks. It was a good day. They both started. I was every day, I was the doer, man. I was doing it as I grew the company and we got to the end. I had a management team in place. I had three operations managers and an office manager and they preferred it if I wasn't around. Yeah. <laughs> Just let them do it. So, but no, they, and they did a fantastic job, but it takes time. You know, it's about having you know enough cash flow that you can hire the right people. But eventually that was the ultimate thing. I focused on buying other companies and had the people in place to run mine. Now, have you considered any time recently besides just the advisory or like, are you acquiring anything right now at all or? You know, that's kind of a hidden agenda behind Innovative is, uh, yes. I was going to say it should be, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I'll advise you or I will buy you. (laughs) I am that hourglass that is always spinning on your computer screen, right? I'm looking. So, yes, I am very interested in investing in other companies and really, you know, my thought process is I wouldn't mind being a minority investor, but I have ways that that would have to be set up. But, you know, so again, if you're a listener and you're thinking about buying a company is an excellent way to grow by acquisition. And there's a lot of the companies that I bought, you know, so when I bought them, I could add products immediately to the customers that they were serving. And it's important to understand the difference between a financial acquisition and a strategic acquisition, or more importantly, a financial valuation and a strategic valuation. I talk about it in the book. It's one of the first chapters. Me and my accountant used to always butt heads because he would say, Terry, you only pay for a company for the cash flow that it's generating. But I knew if I bought that company, I could eliminate, gosh, 40% of their operating expenses and Mm -hmm. improve their cost of goods sold because I have better buying power. So maybe from a financial Valuation. He didn't understand the strategic side of it as much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's huge. And, and that's, that's where I think some business owners have a false realization. You hear of these huge multiples. Well, yeah, that happens because it was a very strategic operation. But, you know, if I'm an individual buying your company and I don't already have a company, that's going to be more of a financial acquisition and you're not going to get that huge multiple. That's why the last business that I bought that I was telling you about offline, it was a financial decision. I wasn't even actually looking for it. it stumbled across it, fell in my lap. And I had no strategic reason to buy this. I, I, it did not plug and play into any of my current ventures, but I got it for a reasonable price. And I was like, okay, this is something I think I could improve. But yeah, I didn't give, I gave a much lower valuation on it because I didn't think I'd be able to just pull the trigger and double the revenues. Yeah. So, I mean, 
two real quick examples. I mean, one, when Growmark bought me, I was their largest competitor in Southern Illinois, hands down. I was a major thorn in their side. So it was good for me to go away. So that made me a prime strategic acquisition. And I had a lubricants packaging facility and they had just bought a lubricants blending facility and they wanted to get into bulk oil business in Southern Illinois. And by buying me, they not only have the facility, they get a half a million gallons in sales. I talk about in the book, another deal. So the Highland exit and the Vandalia exit is 30 miles apart. In between is Greenville, Illinois. Very high area of customer concentration for me. There was a guy in Greenville that I bought that was just a small competitor, but he had a bulk plant, a bulk storage facility. And he wanted about, I don't know, let's just say $100,000 more than what the company was really worth. But did I pay him that? You're dang right I did because I tore down the bulk plant. If he would have sold it to a competitor, now they could have had a facility right in the middle of an area that I was, had a really high customer concentration. But if I bought him, even though if I, you know, from a financial valuation perspective, I was paying too much for him, but he was a single operator. I was going to be eliminating, gosh, 90% of his operating expenses. So it was still a good acquisition and it was good to eliminate not, you know, he was a small competitor in my area, but eliminate the possibility of a larger competitor coming in and taking over his facility. Right. Makes sense. No, and that's the right type of thinking. If that's that strategic thinking and thinking from a 360 degree, not just like one, does it make financial sense off the most obvious path or yeah. not? I mean, that's why deal makers and people who acquire and dispose businesses, et cetera. This is one of the things I think is so sexy as a, you know, in business is just because there's a lot of different approaches you can Ugh. utilize to find leverage. Yeah. So, and you know, another piece of advice I'd give your listeners is again, if you're getting into the acquisition mode at the beginning, it's very frustrating with banks because when you're acquiring a company, they don't want to look at that company's cash flow as far as paying off the loan. They want to look at your business's existing cash flow. So that was a little bit of an obstacle. When we grew to the size where say I'm buying a company for a half million dollars, where the cash flow from my existing business could make that loan payment without any income from the company that you was buying, as crazy as that sounds, that's when it really took off. And I mean, that's where we could start doing an acquisition almost every year. Yep. So to repeat that, when the cash flow of your company can pay for the loan payments of the company that you're acquiring without any income from that company, that's when you're really going to be in the driver's seat. But then the other side of that too is have conversations with your banker. It's important that your banker knows what you're going to do. Just like anybody, you don't like surprises. So I'd sit down with my bank at the, towards the end. I used two of them and tell them exactly what my intentions were. What, you know, I plan on buying this truck. I'm planning on trying to buy this company. And that way they could help you. They're anticipating what's coming and can really, if they got a red flag, throw it up before you get in the middle of a negotiation that you can't do. Right. Now you brought up something that I knew this, but it was in the back of my mind and it was a great reminder, which is that like, and this is not for a strategic acquisition. Like, let's just say you want to just go buy a business. You want to be in that business. I want to buy a manufacturing business or whatever it is. And I plan on getting a bank loan. Yeah, you can't really rely on saying, oh, well, look how much money this business that I'm going to buy makes. Obviously, that's how I'm going to pay for the business. The banks don't really like that. So if you're giving advice to somebody who is more of a, I just want to get into that business and acquire that, and they're thinking about going the traditional bank route, et cetera, are there any ways around that? If they're not coming out with fat cash to take care of their loan payments, et cetera, and they're hoping that that business does, is there any other way around that that they should be starting to consider? to help make it go smoother. 
Yeah, I mean, all situations are different, so it's not a deal killer. I would There's have, a lot of creative would, ways to do it. Yeah, taking. I mean, I would have bankers cringing if you right now, if I said that, you know, you have to have your own cash flow before you can buy another company. But what's the longevity of that company? What's the consistency of that cash flow? Do you know the business? What's your experience if you're going into this line? But more importantly, and I talk about it in the book, about your bankability, all loans boil down to two things. What's my collateral and what's my cash flow? And do those meet? So if you ain't going to pay me back, what can I take to cover my butt? from the banker's perspective. And uh, it was really as painful as to work at a bank for three and a half years. Because man, in business, you should learn to say no to certain types of customers. Well, banks are really good at it. But it's interesting. It was very interesting to learn how they think of things on the other side of the fence. And they're going to look at, do you have contracts with your, and they're going to look at a lot of things that you should look at before buying. You know, do you have contracts with your customers? You know, what's the income trend of that company over the last five years? What's the future of it look like? What's the management of it look like? And then, you know, the level of scrutiny is obviously going to go up with the dollar amount. Absolutely. Pushing gears just out of personal curiosity of your personal preferences. If you were just going to go, if you weren't doing all the advising and you were just going to go get into a business right now and look to acquire it, et cetera, are there any industries, verticals, types of criteria you would personally look at if you were going to buy it and not just buy it for a super minority, just kind of advise or whatever, but if you're going to go buy it, so for instance, would it be like maybe another industrial-based mm-hmm. company? Would it be? I love your questions. I'm going to answer in two words, recurring yeah. revenue. Yes, sir. Does the company have recurring revenue? You know, I laugh because we started Innovative and then for the most part, we're a brokerage company. That's a terrible idea. Once you sell the company, now I'm going to go find another one to sell. So if you think about my fuel business and we serviced a number of industries, trucking, farming, manufacturing, but let's just use farmers, for example. Every year, farmers are going to farm. That's recurring revenue. Every year, your municipalities are going to run fire trucks and ambulances and police cars. That's recurring revenue. You know, insurance companies sell for a higher multiple because that's recurring revenue. CPA firms, you got to do your taxes. That's recurring revenue. I like to use an HVAC company as an example. If you're an HVAC company that strictly does new construction, you're not going to fetch a higher value as an HVAC company that does mostly repair work and you have service agreements mm-hmm. with your clients. Companies. Ongoing subscription repair, pay X yeah. amount a month and call me when you want. Yeah. And then do you also look for, I mean, th- this is a loaded question because I know the answer is yes, which is a business that maybe doesn't have recurring revenue, but they could with a few tweaks because that's a tremendous value add. It's like, oh, wow, I'm going to come. Well, yeah. So, that is the beauty of acquisitions. If you just brought the acquisition, the acquire to an, another level, if you can, what I do see, here on Bacon Rab, if you can see things that the other person doesn't see, man, you can get some tremendous value. Yep. No, that's awesome. Now, what does it look like to work with innovative business advisors? So, obviously, I mean, tell me a little bit more about your company and the services you provide. You've been great on telling us about just general knowledge, but. I mean, you got into this business for a couple of reasons. One is to help other entrepreneurs, business owners, and people navigate this world, whether it's acquiring, right? You help people acquire and grow through acquisition or to exit. And obviously, if there's anything that's you know amazing and in your wheelhouse, you have the experience and knowledge to acquire it for them, with them, et cetera, which is a great thing to have, by the way. Like if I had an advisor who's helping me on this stuff, but if he didn't have the confidence or wherewithal to actually buy my business or something like that himself, I might be like, ah, I want somebody who actually could because you never know. 
but what's it look like to work with you? Like, yeah. so both sides, can, acquisition we, and exit side. We can certainly help people acquire businesses. And typically we do that on a monthly retainer. What I would tell you is it is really the ideal person for us to work on the acquisition side. You know, they come to me and I want to buy other companies is let's just use our HVAC company again. I want to buy an HVA, another HVAC company. So I know who to go look for. The ones that are time killers for us is somebody that comes to me from a corporate job and says, I want to buy a business. Yeah. You know, I don't what know what to buy. Most of our clients are on the sell side. It's nice when you get a client that has a runway in front of them. So they're not looking to sell in the next six months. I'm working with a company right now that they came to me and the owner got sick and they're like, if we don't sell it in three months, we're closing it down. Yeah. That really limits your options. In a perfect situation, I would say it starts with evaluation. You know, we value the company. Who's your financial representative? If you don't have one, I'll introduce you. And what's your number? You know, what do you need to retire out of this business and meet your financial goals? So if we value the company and it's at a number that meets that goal, then you go down to brokerage side. If we value the company that doesn't meet your goal, then let's take you down to coaching side and let's build this thing up. I got a coaching client that I'm working with right now that they isn't going to make their retirement goal. It's like, man, you're 50 and you ain't going to be there by 60 the way you're going. So we helped them. They would just, as of last Friday, they opened up another shop, you know, so that's a perfect idea. But obviously you do get people come to you and say, I would like to sell sooner than later. And we help them, you know, we do the marketing, we put it together, we play quarterback, we make sure that they got the right attorney, that their CPA is on board, that they got a financial advisor to help with structuring the deal. So here's some, my two mantras. With your company, it's not about sales and net income, it's about gross profit and cash flow. And when you go to sell your company, it's not what you sell your company for, it's what you keep net of taxes. Those are two hugely different things. So I just get so frustrated when somebody comes in and is like, my sales are up a half million dollars this year. Well, who cares? Did you make any more money? Were your expenses up half a million and one? Exactly. So then same way with selling your company. I mean, I could paint you dozens of scenarios where there may be a half million dollars difference in purchase price. You know, what are you getting net of taxes? And it's the first, I don't know, I used a book coach to write my book and it, they call it the first, first page. The first, first page of my book is me buying a company that the two CPAs were at odds because it was all over the allocation of the assets. You know, so you establish a purchase price and then you have to allocate that to the assets that you're buying. And whether it's goodwill or towards equipment can have huge tax implications. And, you know, it was going to cost my seller over a hundred grand the way I had to have it, but that's the way I had to have it, you know, mm -hmm. but that can cause a lot of heartburn. But those are big deals. So helping them sell the business, we got intimate knowledge and bankers, attorneys, financial advisors. We help you, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but you know, yeah. you don't know what you don't know, right? So if you haven't been through it, trust me, I'll guide you through it. And all those awkward questions that come up, like he wants to see a customer list. No, he wants to know if there's customer concentration. So this is what we'll show him. I had a phone call this morning. We, gosh, it's a company for close to $8 million. We're going through due diligence. And I was just, there's some things I wrote on the due diligence list that you don't need to know that right now, not till we're closer, not till we know the financing place, you know, maybe not until the purchase agreement signs and we're 30 days. So it's, it's all those funny questions. Yep. Those are important. Those questions are, uh, you know, what really make or break, you know, a deal. And you know, the entrepreneur, the business owner shouldn't feel bad about not knowing the answers because they've done well from putting the pieces yep. in place to actually build an actual business. And now when it's time to either dispose or buy one, yeah, you know, I it's mean, kind of time to defer to experts. 
So this meeting this morning, I mean, due diligence questions are critically important to buying a company. I knew what to ask when I was buying other oil companies. I, I post the oil company and bought a property management company. And I didn't know what questions to ask. And we got burnt on a lot of things. You know, the computers were shot. The employees were trained on this computer software. The phone system was shot. I didn't know the right questions to ask. You know, another, we talked about non-financial things that can affect the value of the company. This conversation this morning for selling this company, there's, there's trucking involved. And there was some huge DOT red flags that got thrown up just for the way we initially answered the due diligence questions. Thankfully, it all worked out because this is a larger company for us to sell. But, you know, had they not been compliant on these DOT issues, it could have completely killed the deal. Yep. The devil's in the details, isn't it? Absolutely. So, so. speaking of questions, what is uh, in your business right now? Obviously, there's a lot of things that you're trying to do. Obviously, uh, you'd love to get more clients and things like that. That's the obvious stuff. Are there any particular nuts you're trying to crack in terms of let's say it's an initiative you're trying to pursue, a problem you're trying to solve, a person you're trying to meet, a skill you're trying to learn, uh, anything of that nature that allows me or my audience to open our mind and be able to give back to you and help you out. Like it could be really anything. So what's interesting and actually it's, you are asking some great questions. So I told you brokerage, non-recurring revenue. So there's a lot of people out there that would pay, let's just say $500 a month to learn about finances, but they can't afford $2,500 a month. So I'm interested in knowing from your listeners or from you, the thought process is to create kind of like little mastermind groups Mm -hmm. and charge a fee around $500 a month. And then we would meet monthly. And then what I'm going to provide you is the knowledge of knowing how to run your business from a financial perspective and teach you 10 or so key performance indicators, financial ratios, call them what you want, which will be a dashboard that if you know those and I can teach you 10 things, you're going to have a pretty good pulse of how your company is running. And we'll teach you what your bankability is, you know, what your debt service coverage ratio is, what your accounts receivable days, payable days, inventory days, you know, how does that relate to your cash flow margin versus your gross profit margin? And mm-hmm. th- those are all just crucially important things to know versus just being a checkbook manager. So for me, selfishly, I guess, that helps me create recurring revenue in the business. And I guarantee you it'd be worth the money, but it would have to be a confidential, intimate group, say just five people, and work with them on a monthly basis to really help them build their financial statements in a readable manner to help them manage their business. Yeah, no, I know there is. That's definitely a hot topic. I've got a friend and former guest on the show who's done some live events on this. I don't know if he's added a virtual thing, but it's called like Know Your Numbers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like a one or two day workshop. I think it was a one day workshop. It wasn't like necessarily ongoing and it didn't necessarily focus on a result such as selling your business or getting it with certain KPIs. But I know that it was a a well-attended, heavily interested event because especially as you start to get successful and you know, sales are getting taken care of everything else, but you look and you see that everything is just a mess and you don't really know what, yeah, I mean, you're, you're focused on the wrong KPIs. Um, and I think that in order to do that, there's, there's going to be kind of two types of people, the ones who know they need 
that help? And they're like, yeah, I, I just need to figure this stuff out because I know I'm woefully ignorant of it and I know I need to know it. And then there's the other people who don't necessarily, they don't, they don't realize they've got that issue yet, but they should. And I think kind of appealing to their, like, listen, when you're ready to kind of step into the real business owner role and not just the business operator and uh, not whatnot. the checkbook manager. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's the one client I had, you know, he was like, oh, that dang banker, he don't know what he's talking about. You know, blah, blah, blah. I talked to that guy, blah, you know, and it's like, no, dude, you're unbankable. And this is why. And, you know, and we got him fixed, you know, we straightened it out. The other thing I would tell you that would be interesting is I do definitely want to get into this public speaking realm a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. That was kind of another point of publishing the book. So, you know, if you have a group of people, I do a couple different talks, you know, one on valuation, what's it worth. But then I think another one that's really cool is we do, we look at it from a strategic valuation, you know, so what does it look like strategically to buy this company? And then I run through some scenarios of talking about non-financial things. Say you're approaching buying three different companies and, you know, this company runs itself. They all got the same cash flow, but this company runs this way, this company runs this way, and this company runs this way. So think about that from a non-financial perspective of which company would you buy? And then kind of the reverse psychology of it is, if you're a business owner and you're going to eventually sell your business, are you running it in a way that will make it sellable? Right. So that's great. Yeah. I mean, this topic I think would be, you know, tremendous on the public speaking circuit. And I got a handful of resources I'm happy to point you to from some things that have worked both for me, for some of my clients and even business partners. We can kind of talk about that. And the, yeah, the, the whole kind of mastermind and financial model, I think that'd be the way I would do that personally, I would go to your existing database and contacts of people there and either offer to host a, you know, a one to three hour Zoom yeah. you know, webinar where you're kind of going over it or just do kind of a, an in-person meetup where you're really just kind of going over those 10 metrics and whatnot and make that offer because you never know. I mean, you might get more than five, you could definitely get, you know, 50 people you know, interested in that. And I think that it is so, you know, critically important. People need to do it. And I don't think that's offered really enough. You you don't just stumble across that offer out there for people very often. Well, one of my clients, she tells me every month, she's like, Terry, I looked for years for somebody to help me run my business. They have a diesel repair shop and they're very good at running their shop, but nobody's ever taught them how to run their business you know, so Huge yeah, I don't know. It's cool stuff. <laughs> well, People awesome. hate finance, but you know, there's a way to get through it. That can be fun. And, and it, ain't, it ain't rocket science, you know, that you can, you know, I'm not teaching how to take a gallbladder out. We're just putting some simple checks and measures in place to make the, keep you bankable and understand, you know, what the cash flow of your company is doing and ways to think about it. Yeah. I love it. So if folks want to, find out more about you, get a hold of you, get your book. What are some links that we can add to the show notes and that they can rush off of and say, all right, I got to learn more about what old Terry has to say. Yeah. So our website is www.innovativeboyapple.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. If you go to the media tab on our website, you'll see a lot of business articles and other podcasts and video of me speaking. So there's quite a bit of information there. I would encourage any business owner to, there's a tab there to take the value builder questionnaire. That's a great thing to do. Doesn't cost you anything and be happy to reach out to you and talk with you. Got a good presence on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. I'm not a Twitter guy, but I know I'm out there because I got a social media person that puts stuff out there. So, (laughs) but 
you know, my phone number, I'm not afraid to give it out is 618-530-8922. Happy to talk to anybody. Fantastic. Well, Terry, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. It has been a lot of fun for me personally. I assume it's been fun for everybody still listening, but honestly, I don't care because I had so much fun that even if they weren't listening, I would have enjoyed having this conversation with you, especially a uh, Midwestern uh, boy like yourself. (laughs) It's a small world. I can't believe it. You told me you was from Edwardsville. I was like, holy cow. It's crazy. What year did you graduate high school? 87. All right. I'm 92. So I was just right behind you, but not too far. I know. Well, thanks again for being a guest on Bacon Wrap Business. And I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you, Terry. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll do business someday together. Yeah, let's do it again. Okay, this episode is almost done, but our time together doesn't have to end, at least not yet. Subscribe to the show so you don't miss the next episode and head on over to baconwrapbusiness.com where you can find more bonus material and you can leave me a voice message with your question. If it's good, I'll read it on the air. And if you have a business problem you'd like my brain on, send me an email to askbrad at baconwrappedbusiness.com. Tell me more and I might be able to give you a second opinion on what's keeping you stuck. See you on the next episode.